dedicated ones go to Sunday school and church together, and then they have even more dedicated ones who maybe go on Wednesday night uh, or are involved in some sort of ministry, and they come to Sunday school and they come to church. But in between, there is a large amount of time that you spend on your own, in your home, as a family, perhaps, or, or living alone, and your daily walk is with God as individuals, between individuals and God. Because that's what our culture is made up of. We all house with a fence around it, we don't talk to our neighbors, and it's getting worse that way. Have you noticed that there is very little communication between neighbors and people are kind of little individuals and we drive into our, you know, garage and we don't get out of the car, roll up the garage door, roll it back down, we go into the house, we don't answer the door, we have to call our ID, we have this is my space. <laughs> that is completely counter to what God intended for the church. Um, because as a church, you were a community. And the bond in that community is called, in Ephesians chapter 4, the community of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so they did everything together. When you were a Christian, it says clearly in the New Testament, you were baptized not only in Christ, but you were baptized into the body of Christ, into the church, into the community. And when somebody came to Christ, he had to make a public statement. He had to make it in front of everybody. Usually that was baptism. They were baptized right there and then publicly as a public statement saying, now I belong to Christ. But not only that, they... They had to demonstrate that they were serious and they brought all their goods with them and they shared them so that everybody uh, had everything in common. There was no one with a need and there was a visible unity. Everybody shared everything that they had. Can you imagine if that was a requirement for us to be Christians? We wouldn't have big buildings full of people, probably, if that was a, a requirement. We've lowered the bar as far as that's concerned with when you became a Christian, you demonstrated by being, okay, I'm now a part of the community. I show that. I bring everything that I have, and I share it, and it's administered so that there's nobody that has any needs. So they were immediately brought into a community. And in Acts 2.42, we read that they met in each other's houses, breaking bread, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, and to communion, and to prayer, and those kinds of things. So they hung out together all the time. And then on Sundays, perhaps, or I think probably on Saturdays, because they were still Jewish in the beginning, um, they went to the temple, and in a wing of the temple, the apostles would teach the masses, the, the larger group. But in between, they would hang out in each other's houses and, uh, and practice community. And so their faith walk was very much a community-oriented thing. It was a group exercise. They weren't just a, a group of individuals that scurried about and met once in a while. They were together all the time as an identifiable community of believers. What did a community look like? And this is an important backdrop to um, the work of the Spirit in the church. Uh, Paul likens the spiritual community of believers to a human body in which he stresses unity and interdependence. Namely that each member is related to each other. Think about the, uh, the human body for a second. This hand here can't do absolutely nothing without my forearm. My forearm is of little use without my elbow, which is a fun thing to have, but if my 
work. You can't do much either. And my shoulder joint is absolutely essential to make that whole assembly move. So if I have to pick up something, it takes a joint interdependent effort of my hand, my, well, my fingers, my hand, my wrist, my forearm, my elbow, my upper arm, my shoulder, etc. So that is what interdependence is like. And, and he goes into depth about that. I didn't read that passage in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, which follows this passage about the gifts. But he admonishes that, you know, the eye can't say, I'm the body of Christ. Um, you know, it's part of the body of Christ. So we can't have more important members and less important members, or, or one member can say, the hand can say, I don't need anybody. I can be the body of Christ. That interdependence is very, very vital. Um, and each of those members, just as the members of the body have been given, are given blood, essentially, and signals and brain signals and whatnot to function together, each of us have been given gifts of the Spirit in order to foster that interdependence of one another, to foster that unity. And the function of those gifts is that they are supposed to work together in harmony so that we help each other grow as Christians in our faith and help the community, the Christian community at large, grow in the unity of the faith. That is the function of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're not just fun things to have. They're not things to be proud of and say, oh, look, I give you. You only have that gift. Uh, that kind of stuff. It is something that is to work together in a community so that we all grow up in the faith and in the unity uh, of the Spirit. What we have today in our churches is a far cry from that. Essentially, what we have gone to is that most people in our churches today have no idea what the spiritual gift is, what their spiritual gift is. Most people don't even have an idea that they have spiritual gifts, or they're scared of the idea that they have spiritual gifts because it sounds spooky, like you know ESP or something like that, something something spooky that you know I'd rather not think about. Or God make me make, make me want to do something that uh, or make make me do something that I don't want to do that type of thing. So people shy away from that. And what we do instead is we hire professional staffs who run our ministries, and we give them money and the money that pays their salary and 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 they run the church and they run the ministries and they're in charge of this and they're in charge of that. And so we just show up and you know maybe some of us participate in the ministry, uh, some more than others, but a vast majority of our people in the churches in the United States do not participate in ministry. I have no idea what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, right, illustrating key point. <laughs> uh, that's where the 80-20 principle comes from, the fact that 20% of the people in our churches do 80% of the work, and 80% of the people then do 20% of the work. We hire professional staffs to run our ministries and we do not live as an interdependent body of Christ the way that it was meant to be. <coughs> so, the question is, did you know that you have been given spiritual gifts? Each and every one of you are born again of the Spirit of God and in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Do you know that you've been given spiritual gifts? 
that are supposed to work in conjunction with the gifts of others to serve this body of believers. And that begins with relationships. That's why I'm talking about the fact that spiritual gifts function in the context of overall community, the community of believers. Gifts don't function, per se, in events and programs. Some people's gifts do, because some people's gifts will, uh, or some events and programs will event, uh, teaching or presenting or something like that. Uh, and so somebody's gift is being used. But by and large, if we only have these events and programs, more than relationships, the gifts don't function because they're meant for relationships. After all, they're meant to build one another up in the faith. And if that's the case, you have to hang out together. You have to be together. You have to spend time together. You have to know each other. You have to know each other's joys and sorrows and weaknesses and strength and, and get to know each other as people in order that you know how to minister to each other, how to encourage each other, and how to use your spiritual gifts for each other. So they function. The spiritual gifts are meant for the context of relationships. And that is really what the body of Christ is all about, which is why it is so good that a larger church like RUMC has smaller groups like CUC and Bereans and that are far more than a Sunday school class where you just come in the room and sit and learn and leave. You guys are community. You do things together. You do service projects together. You hang out together. You have fun together. And so you have a prime environment in which the gifts of the Spirit can function. So you have to live together and work and, and do life together to a degree for the spirit, the spiritual gifts, to flourish amongst you. <coughs> Let's talk a little bit about the spirit's gifting of the church as a whole, and then we'll do an overview of these spiritual gifts. We read in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit is the master architect of the building that God is building uh, as a dwelling place for himself in which we demonstrate the presence of God. So he is the sovereign distributor in, in, uh, in distributing the gifts. You cannot request certain gifts or something like that. Well, you give me this, that one. The Holy Spirit decides who gets what. And he does that according his, to his worldwide plan. And that worldwide plan is far greater than we can comprehend. So we can't question it. We can't guess at it. We can't try to comprehend why we have certain spiritual gifts and why others aren't functioning here uh, that can be different in different churches. Maybe certain types of gifts uh, function more in charismatic churches. Other uh, uh, gifts function more in, in United Methodist churches or mainline Protestant churches. Uh, some individual gifts may function more in a certain environment. We can't guess at that. That's all part of what the Holy Spirit has in mind as he surveys the growth of the body of Christ worldwide. And that is way, way, way bigger than we can understand. So he decides who gets what according to his worldwide plan. Uh, there are 13 gifts listed here in First uh, Corinthians 12. There's the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues, helping, administrating, apostleship, 
addition to those in that passage in Romans, there are five more in there that aren't mentioned in Corinthians. Service, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. And then there are two additional gifts in Ephesians chapter 3, which I haven't read, where uh, Paul says uh, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to the church for equipping the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ until we all attain in the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And those five gifts um, are pastors, teachers, uh, prophets, apostles, and evangelists. So the ones that aren't mentioned uh, anywhere else there is pastor and evangelist. So in total, there are 20 gifts that are listed here in the scripture, 20 spiritual gifts. And if you can categorize them, kind of what they would group under, I find that you have three groups of gifts here. You have ministerial gifts, motivational gifts, and manifestational gifts. Ministerial gifts are things like apostleship, administration, helping, service, giving, uh, mercy, uh, pastor, uh, evangelist. Those are ministry-type gifts, ministerial gifts. Then there's motivational gifts, gifts that are used to exhort, to motivate, to um, move people forward. And those include leadership, teaching, exhorting, prophecy, discernment between spirits, and the gift of faith. And then manifestational gifts, the gift of utterance, supernatural utterances, which are for us the scarier ones, um, is utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and healing. So let me give a, an overview of what each of these gifts uh, are and uh, how they are being used and some illustrations of that, etc. First, the ministerial gift. The first gift that we see there is the gift of apostleship. And people can agree about what that means in our day and age. Uh, in the day of the early church, an apostle was very clear. It was a, an itinerant missionary. Um, basically, the disciples became apostles when Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And an apostle essentially means a sent one, somebody who was sent. And so they were traveling itinerant evangelists who then became pastors of the churches they planted and then overseers of the groups of churches that they planted. So the gifts of apostleship um, is essentially a gift of leadership of unifying and vision casting for multiple churches. So today's apostles are networkers between churches. One of the things that I do is, is wherever I've gone in ministry, I network among pastors. Right now in John's Creek, I've visited every single pastor, just about every single pastor of every church in, in John's Creek where I live, and I have brought them together, and they have responded to my initiative as chaplain um, for police and fire in John's Creek, um, and they are now coming together to pray as churches. So I'm in the process of unifying them and bringing them in a place of prayer and seeking God together as a church. That is an apostolic gift, the gift of networking between churches. Then there is the gift of administration. Um, that doesn't mean that you have a spiritual gift for filing. Four fingers that work and the other ones don't. So 
worked for a helmsman. So the administrator is the man at the helm who steers the ship, essentially. Um, he receives his directives from the captain, but he does the steering of the ship. He makes sure that the ship goes where it needs to go. So the administrative person applies structure to the to a church, to a body of believers. There are vision casters uh, and things like that. The administrator takes that and builds the administrative structures that are necessary for a church to function. So policies and regulations and stuff like that and, and administrative procedures and, and uh, um, organizational aspects to Sunday school classes and other things. Those are people with a gift for administration. Then there's the gift of helping. The gift of helping is the ability to see practical needs and meet them. And I think there's quite a bit of that when I hear the announcement. There's quite a, a bit of that in uh, in this class. So you know, here's here's Jim, and he sees the practical needs, and so he gets together the resources to landscape around the A building. That's a task that needs to be done, and so he has the ability to bring together the resources the resources to get that done. That is essentially uh, the gift of uh, of helping. It especially refers to helping people, seeing the needs that people have, and then meeting their practical needs, um, bringing them food, etc. The people that you see here that are coordinating that are the people that can look at a situation that a person is in and say, oh yeah, you know, we need to, this person needs this, that, that, and the other, and then they organize that um, for them. Um, when Jennifer was first diagnosed with cancer, Home room, Bereans, there were some people in there that immediately jumped to the task and called us up and said, How can we help? And they organized people to bring food and to do certain things for us and, and bring gift cards and whatnot. Those are people with the gifts of help. The gift of service would be to identify undone tasks and then gather the resources to do them. That comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. Diakonos or deacons. Deacons are helpers in the church. They were appointed by the elders in the <coughs> church because uh, people were being left out from the food distribution and the apostles realized that there wasn't anybody doing the works of service. So they appointed people that were full of the Holy Spirit and that, that were able to see those needs, those practical undone tasks and make sure that they would get done. There's the gift of giving, the gift of generosity, essentially, which is the ability to share your material resources. All of us have the responsibility to give, obviously. You're being taught that very well in this church. We spend a whole month on it in the month of October. Uh, all of us have that. We can't hide behind the fact, well, that giving is not my spiritual gift. <laughs> 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 you know, we all have to give. But um, there are people that have a gift of giving. It kind of works like this. I, I came across uh, a, a group of Christian millionaires some time ago with the gift of giving. These were all people that were very, very good at making money. And they made tons of money. But instead of enriching themselves, they saw the needs of the world, missionary projects that needed to be funded and things like that. So they got together and they uh, said, how can we make all, these, all this money, which is not our money, 
of God's money available to the kingdom of God? How can we release it into the kingdom of God? And so they continue to live a very simple lifestyle. They don't live in mansions. They live in, in very simple homes and drive fairly simple cars. But they're all millionaires, and they come together in a foundation called Kingdom Oil, and they plan together how they can give their wealth away. That is the gift of giving. People who know how to give their, who apply their, know how to apply their material resources to practical financial needs in the kingdom of God. Then there is the gift of mercy. I don't have that one. Um, but God is teaching me mercy. All of us have to be merciful. Of, of, of course, compassion is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But people that have a gift of mercy have a particular sensitivity and compassion and understanding um, for the care of the suffering. Have you noticed how, how a lot of us, when somebody is suffering, we don't quite know what to do? And it makes us feel uncomfortable at times. And we sometimes shy away from that because we don't know what to say and we're afraid to say something stupid or make the person feel uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable because it's too close to home and we don't know what the practical needs are, how to do that. A person with the gift of mercy is drawn to the suffering and they immediately see what their needs are and they know what to say and they know what to do and they know how to come alongside that person and be a comforter and a helper. That's the gift of mercy. Then there is the gift of being a pastor. Now we have turned being a pastor into a role and a position. That was not the original intent in the scripture. Uh, we have made a, a clergy, a paid clergy staff. Uh, we've inherited that from the Roman Catholic Church. But it wasn't the original intent in the scripture. Uh, being a pastor was essentially a spiritual gift. And so it is the gift uh, or the ability, the spiritual ability to provide care, spiritual care, uh, spiritual feeding, protection, and guidance to a group of believers that have been entrusted to you. So I've seen as a result of that in today's church, pastors who don't have the gift of being pastors. How is that possible? We have a, this, this, this position called executive pastor. What in the world is that? That's an administrator. It's a director. It's a person with administrative gifts who directs the ministries of the church. There's nothing wrong with that. But he doesn't have the gift of a pastor. We have teaching pastors. I've met teaching pastors who are brilliant teachers and lousy pastors. They're not shepherds. They don't, they're not able to spiritually guide and feed and move the flock along as God has intended. I mean, that is really the picture what you have to have is a shepherd and his flock. Somebody who takes care of the flock, he protects it, he moves it along. My first mentor when I was just setting out in pastoral ministry many years ago in Holland said, what is involved in pastoring is that in order the goal of pastoring is to move the whole flock forward at, at the same time and roughly the same speed. And so you have to know which ones to kick in the rear <laughs> and which ones to slow down in the front. That's the gift of being a pastor, to move everybody along at the same time. 
Then there is the gift of, oh, and, and in, in addition to that, I want to say this, with the pastorate, I have seen many lay people who were not ordained, didn't go to seminary, do not have the title of pastor, so-and-so, or reverend, so-and-so, who have pastoral gifts. They have groups on them. A lot of small group leaders often have this pastoral gift of leading a small group of believers under their care <coughs> and helping them grow in faith. Then there's the gift of evangelists. Um, that's the ability to share the gospel with persuasion. All of us are called upon, all of us are given the responsibility to give account of our faith. The fact that there are people that have the gift of evangelism does not absolve us from sharing our faith at all. That's bad news. The same with the, the, the gift of giving. Uh, we are all supposed to be involved in it. But somebody who has the gift of evangelism is able to turn any conversations when you start talking about a banana. Before you know it, within five minutes, they're talking about the gospel of Christ. Billy Graham had the gift of evangelism. That's really about the only thing that he could do in his whole life is the gift of evangelism, leading thousands to Christ. I remember while I was in Bible college in uh, Great Britain, many years ago, uh, Billy Graham came to Bristol in Great Britain and we went with our preaching class to his crusade to basically listen to him preach and then analyze. And after we were done with analyzing him, we uh, all realized or we all came to the conclusion that he was one of the loudest preachers we'd ever heard. <laughs> Homiletically speaking, as far as the art of preaching is concerned, it's done. But the rapport that he had and the ability to convey the truth of the gospel of Christ <coughs> nevertheless resulted in thousands of people pouring forward and stating to give their hearts to Christ. That's the gift of humility. Then there's motivational words. Uh, leadership is one of those. And leadership essentially is to motivate others to accomplish common goals from a central point in the body. So a leader is somebody who stands on the hill, kind of, if you will, and he is motivating others to accomplish common goals. A leader invests himself in people to rally around them around a common goal. That's what a leader does. I can spend days on leadership and much has been made of that, but essentially if you want a summary, that's what a leader uh, does. From a central vantage point, he rallies the troops and motivates them to get behind a common cause or goal. There's the gift of teaching. Teaching is to instruct others in the Bible in a logical, systematic way so as to communicate pertinent information for understanding and growth. That's a motivational gift. I seem to have that gift, or so some people say. Uh, but uh, essentially, it's not just imparting information. I'm not teaching math. I'm teaching, it's a motivational gift in the sense that my teaching is aimed at motivating you towards greater growth in Christ. So that's why it belongs to the motivational gifts. Along with that comes the teacher, the, the gift of exhorting. And exhorting uh, is the gift to come alongside of someone with words of encouragement, comfort, consolation, and counsel to help them um, to be all that God wants them to be. And the Greek word that goes with that gift is paraklesis. And paraclesis, that's where we get the paraclete from, which is 
one and say, you can do it. He calls out strength and he calls out motivation and he calls out willpower and he calls out the ability to look beyond the limitations and to move forward. That's what an exhorter does. Then there is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, a lot of times when we hear that, we think, oh, that's foreseeing the future. That's foretelling what happens in the future. That's not what it means at all. Prophecy is to speak forth the whole counsel of God. That's what a prophet does. Now, that may very well be what's going to happen in, in the future. For instance, there was the prophet Agabus, who Agabus met Paul on his way back to Jerusalem in his final phase of ministry, and by way of you know tying his hand with his belt and stuff, um, he foretold Paul what was going to happen to him once he got to Jerusalem as a warning, essentially, because God told him to go do that. Go tell him what's going to happen in Jerusalem so he can be spiritually prepared in his walk to meet his suffering and he meet the challenges of this new phase of ministry that, I, that I'm calling him to. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke forth the counsel of God. They didn't have any written scripture at that particular point. The Holy Spirit did not indwell believers, so there was only really one way for God to communicate with the people, and that was through the prophet. And a lot of times, the prophets would say, if you do this, if you obey, God will restore you, God will bless you, God will prosper you, God will uh, will take you in and his people and be your God. If you don't, all kinds of nasty, beautiful things are going to happen, which is why they weren't very popular in the Old Testament. Today, in our churches, um, a prophet, a lot of times, um, a preacher has a prophetic gift. And that is because he goes before God and he says, God, what is it that you want to share through me with the body of Christ? And God inspires him in his sermons. This is why Pastor Mike has a prophetic gift. He goes away for sometimes a week at a time to be alone with God and pray about what it is that God wants to communicate through him to the body of Christ. And when he stands on the on the pulpit, yeah, he preaches, he teaches, but he prophesies. He speaks forth the counsel of God to us as a body of believers from the word. That is a prophetic gift. Then there is the discernment between spirits. And that is the ability to clearly distinguish truth from error by judging whether the behavior or teaching is from God, Satan, human error, or human power. All of those things. That gets at the motive behind, it's discerning the motive of why certain things are being said and done. Um, then a couple of more manifestations. There is the gift of the utterance of wisdom. The utterance of wisdom is the spiritual ability to apply knowledge to life in such a way to make spiritual truth relevant. Uh, it is being said that wisdom is knowledge applied. Somebody who utters wisdom, utters the wisdom given to him from God that applies knowledge to everyday life. And sometimes that comes to you, or more often than not, that comes to you as the recipient in the form of wise godly counsel. Wise godly counsel comes from the gift of the utterance of wisdom. And there is the utterance of knowledge. And I take this to mean, a lot of people have different ideas about this, but to me, this means the ability to supernaturally receive information about persons or circumstances for prayer and for remedial action. 
not from manipulation. God told me to tell you to do this. That can be manipulative. It can be gossiping. But it is supernaturally being revealed by God something about somebody that He wants you to be part of. I'll give you an example. When I started as uh, Executive Director of Midwest Council of Prayer in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1993, it was a part-time position, and the other half I was a meter reader for a suburb of Minneapolis, a water meter reader. And so I went from house to house, I had a little black uh, handheld computer and and, uh, and sort of like a black gun that I was supposed to hold up to a dot and it would, you know, send the information to my little doohickey and report the meter readings and I went from house to house to house, all the routes were planned. And a little while into it, God broke into my wandering mind as I was going through the city and said, why don't you use this opportunity um, to pray for the people in the houses who's needing you? And I said, Lord, I don't know anything about that. And God said, I do. And he began to tell me things about those people. Sometimes one word, depression or rebellion or past or police or teenage trouble or mental illness or, or anything like that enough to prompt a prayer back to God about that situation into that house that is um, the gift of knowledge and the utterance of knowledge back to God and if God reveals something to you about someone, then you are to take that person aside and carefully, tactfully say, God has put it on my heart that something is going on with you and it's this, that, and the other. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? <laughs> so, um, that's the utterance of knowledge. Here's a couple of fun ones that we are scared to death of in the United States Church. The gift of tongues, uh, which we find so much in the charismatic church. I don't subscribe exactly to the way the charismatic church teaches about tongues, namely that everybody has to speak in tongues to give evidence that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't subscribe to that. You either receive the Holy Spirit or you don't. So you don't receive Him in part at rebirth and then you don't receive a second blessing of the Holy Spirit uh, evidenced by tongues. I don't think that that is biblical. But I do think that the gift of tongues is biblical and there are three components to that gift. First of all, when you read to it in, uh, in its original outpouring on the day of Pentecost, you will find that it simply meant the gift of languages. That these tongues of fire on their hand and it says they spoke in the tongues of the people around them. And all of a sudden, you know, all the people that were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, people from Persia and Asia and Phrygia and, and, uh, and the, the Medes, and they heard these un illiterate, mostly illiterate Jewish people speaking their language that never heard before. They never learned that before. They didn't speak those languages before, but the Holy Spirit made them speak their language, and all of a sudden they heard their language spoken and had the specific reason that they were able to communicate the gospel in their language to those people. So 
So that is one aspect of the gift of tongues. But we also read in 1 Corinthians 13 that there is such a thing as a, the tongues of angels. So there are languages that are not known to man, uh, but known to God. And that is a gift that he gives in a person's personal communion with God. And he has given those also collectively for use in the body of Christ. Um, and along with that, he gives to other people the ability to interpret those uh, utterances that nobody can understand, but God supernaturally reveals to another person what that means. And they are always for the edification of the body of Christ. I believe that those things still exist, and they did not die out with the coming of the Scripture. Because there are things that God wants to communicate to the church today that cannot be communicated through the scripture alone, but that he uses that gift for. But there is also, that's the third aspect, is the ability to work and learn uh, languages, which is essentially one of the missionary gifts, if you will, is the ability to go into a tribe somewhere and discern the words that are being spoken, the grammatical structures that are being said uh, without there being a dictionary or a grammar book or anything, and to learn that language and translate the Bible into it. That too falls, in my opinion, under the gift of tongues. Then there is the gift of miracles, and that is to have the ability, the supernatural ability, to perform mighty deeds uh, which witnesses acknowledge to be uh, of supernatural origin and means. Now that happens for the most part in the mission field. There are missionaries who will tell you about power encounters. That you go to some place and people believe in a different God and they're coming to you and say, my God is bigger than your God. And God literally performs through these people <coughs> a sign or a wonder that is supernatural that lends power and credibility to the existence of the God of the Bible and of the Gospel. I've heard stories to the beginning of what is happening. Missionaries who praise, uh, <coughs> who were challenged by their recipients to make it stop raining, and they did. And all kinds of signs and wonders like that. Missionaries who laid hands on a car that had stalled in the middle of nowhere and no garages or anything for hundreds of miles around, and the car was stalled, stalled, and finally somebody gets a brilliant idea and said, if God can create the ability to repair cars, he can certainly repair cars, and they lay hands on the thing and they pray, and boom, the thing starts up again. Science and wonders. <coughs> There's gifts of healing. Healing is to be used as a means through which God makes people whole physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. And it could be the laying on of hands, supernatural healing. Um, it could be an instant healing of a disease or uh, anything else through a miracle by God, but it can also be that he is given the gift of healing as a gradual, in, in a gradual process of making uh, a person whole, discerning what the cause is, what the diagnosis 
one spiritual gift primarily, and that is the gift of evangelism. Um, there is a pastor that I know that have had pastoral gifts and have done the same thing for 40, 50 years in faithfulness. And that there are other people that have changed gifts over time. That all is possible under the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Gifts are not natural talents and they're not general responsibilities of the Christian. They are supernatural things. And I've found that very often God gives gifts in areas that your natural abilities are not suited for. I'll give you an example. In the back there sits a lady who I've been married to for 25 years, and I can tell you that she does not have a natural desire to be in the spotlight or a natural aptitude in the spotlight or leadership abilities to lead a ministry. But God gave her spiritual gifts to teach and to lead and is working through that. And all she has had to do is obey. And God has given the supernatural ability to reach beyond her comfort zone and do those things that in her natural talent, which is more being an artist and a graphic designer and a photographer <coughs> and things, which she's brilliant at, but they are natural abilities. That would be where she would normally shine. This has nothing to do with it. But God called her to this position. The response would be, but God, I can't do that. I don't have any abilities in that direction. And God says, I know. I'm going to give those to you. So that you will acknowledge and see and testify to the fact that your competence in doing these things comes from me and me alone. That's why often your spiritual gifts are very different than your natural talents. How do you see them? Three Ps. Prayer, pastor, and program. First you ask, God, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Please show me what my spiritual gifts are. Then you go talk to your pastor about it. And you ask for your pastor, will you help me find my spiritual gift? That's one of the things that a pastor can do, is talk with you and, and maybe put you in places where you can try certain things if, if it doesn't become obvious. You can take a spiritual gift inventory. You can ask the people around you, is, is, do you feel that I have gifts in certain ways? Because a lot of times you're not aware of them, but other people around you see certain gifts in you, and they can communicate that to you. And check um, what you find against what they think and, what against, and against what God is showing you. And then you have to remember that a gift has to be fanned into flame. Uh, for Jennifer, it took a fairly long process for her to become a gifted speaker. Um, numerous years. We would tour for me too. My first few teaching assignments kind of stuff. Um, I still remember uh, Billy Graham testifying to the fact that you know his his first preaching assignment was in a church, and he was to preach three sermons over three Sundays, and he said, I, I was so nervous, I showed up on the first Sunday, and I preached all three sermons in 50 minutes. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have the gift of evangelism or, or whatever, it simply means that the gift has to, has to be fanned into flame, that is Paul's exhortation to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that God has given you for the laying on of hands by the elders. Uh, that means that you develop it, that you, uh, by obedience,
is put yourself in situations where that gift can be exercised and as you do, it matures and it develops and it grows. So let me leave you with this in closing. You have a God-given responsibility to fight and exercise your spiritual gifts and to join an environment to put it to use simply because God has decreed to work through you <coughs> to help somebody else grow in Christ and has decreed to work through somebody else to help you grow in Christ and to walk away from this and back off and say I don't want to know what my spiritual gifts are is to shirk your God given responsibility to contribute to the growth of the body of Christ and that's an act of disobedience that's part of quenching the Holy Spirit not paying any attention to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Remember from the first week that's quenching the Holy Spirit. Part of that quenching is not wanting to do anything to do, uh, not wanting to have anything to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and not wanting to know what your spiritual gifts are or invest time in putting them to use. And so my challenge is to SCUC. Spiritual Christians is to for you to pray and ask Lord if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are to ask Lord what is my spiritual gift and then to put yourself in places here in this Sunday school class and in the church a hope to put that gift to use. Your pastor is not going to refuse you. He needs all the help he can get. So that's not going to be it. It's people stepping up to the plate and saying, realizing I've been given a gift for the greater good of the body of Christ. And I'm going to use the spiritual gift that God has given. That's great. Father in heaven, we thank you for gifting us in such a broad way. And, uh, overcoming our natural weaknesses in doing And I pray for CUC this morning, as I pray for the other Sunday school classes where I've taught this, that you would open eyes to the presence of spiritual <coughs> and that you would help this class create an environment where people can put these gifts to use so that faith can be built up, so that spiritual growth 